Hi guys, John Dixon here. Uh, I really wish I could be with you. Um, Tassie is one of my favourite places on earth, so I'd love to be down there live uh, and also to, you know, see you. Uh, but this will have to do in these very weird times. I hope you're doing okay. Uh, in this strange lockdown experience of ours. It's a thrill to know that you've been walking your way through the Bible. Um, there's nothing better, really. And it's great to be here uh, toward the end of that series to um, kind of bring it to a close, the way the Bible brings it to a close in, uh, in Revelation. And um, we've been exploring, haven't we, uh, why the Bible is such a phenomenal text. And I hardly need to remind you that the Bible is the world's and history's number one bestseller. Nothing comes even close. I mean, well over six billion copies have been sold. And although the Harry Potter Deathly Hallows uh, beat the Bible in just the year 2007, it, it sold slightly more than the Bible sold that year. Um, the Bible has outsold uh, that book and any other every year uh, since. The strange thing about the Bible is that it, it increases sales. Unlike Deathly Hallows, which um, sells 44 million in 2007 or something like that, and then declines afterwards, the Bible just keeps on climbing, uh, something like 35 million a year. It is astonishing. I mean, that basically works out to one Bible a second. Two, three, four, five people just got Bibles. It's an extraordinary thing. And, and the question is a why. Why is the Bible such a remarkable bestseller? And there are all sorts of cynical explanations. You know, the church forced it on society and so on. But I think the most plausible explanation is that the Bible has met profound human needs. It has answered the four most compelling questions that confront humanity. And it gives such comprehensive answers uh, that people have been drawn to the wisdom of the Bible uh, whenever they, they come across it. The four questions are these. Uh, why the beauty in the world? What's with the ugly in life? Where is God in it all? And what resolution is there? Let me begin just briefly with why the beauty um, there is a problem of beauty, just as there is a problem of ugliness. Um, the problem of pain gets a lot of attention, uh, rightly so, because we live in a world of suffering, and we're certainly aware of that in this strange uh, period of um, the coronavirus. Um, but we don't notice the problem of beauty, which is um, just as mysterious if not more. I mean, it's a bit like um, we, we don't notice the working tap as much as we notice the broken tap. I mean, you know, you walk past the tap every day and it's working and you take it for granted. You turn on the water or you turn off the water uh, and then one day it's drip, drip, dripping and you cry out, oh, why the broken tap? Maybe you don't. Uh, but both call for explanations. The broken tap and more mysterious, because more profound, is the fact that there's a working tap in the first place. In fact, it's only because we know about the working tap and we expect the tap to work that we can perceive the broken tap. Um, it's because we actually think the orderly tap is basic, is proper, is the standard, that when it deviates from the standard, 
we rightly get upset. Well, it's the same with the world. Our universe is marked by extraordinary rational order and elegance. And this isn't just an aesthetic opinion. It isn't just that we look out at sunsets and find them pretty. We can actually describe the order and elegance in the precise language of mathematics. The mathematical formulas that are operating in the universe are extraordinary. Um, it's the same maths that works in the outer reaches of the cosmos that is also working in the smallest particle in the world. And this weird comprehensibility of the laws of nature are truly extraordinary. And, and what's perhaps more extraordinary is that this universe has, through its rational laws, produced minds, like ours, that can perceive those natural laws. So here we are, uh, this is the dilemma I think the atheist faces, this you know, rationally ordered universe, which is meant to be an accident, has somehow in the course of time produced rational minds that now understand the rational laws of the universe that gave rise to the rational minds. The whole thing looks like a setup. Albert Einstein wrote, one may say the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The Bible speaks to this in its opening page, actually. Uh, you can tell it's the central theme of the opening page of the Bible because of that um, not sophisticated literary technique called repetition. Over and over and over, Genesis 1, as you well know, uh, repeats the expression, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And so God makes the light, and it's good. He makes the land and the sea, and they're good. He makes the veggies, and they're good, and everything's good, 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 good. And then right at the end, just in case you missed it, it says God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Uh, what a contrast to atheism, which says that this universe is accidental. You can't judge if it's good or not. It just happened. There's no rhyme or reason in it. Uh, it's almost like atheists believe in magic. I don't mean any offense here, but um, atheists often accuse Christians of believing in magic, and atheists claim that they are the rational ones, but I actually think it's the opposite, because Christians are the ones who say there are rational laws that take you all the way back to a rational mind at the beginning of the universe, God, the eternal rational mind. Whereas an atheist uh, wants us to believe that all of these rational laws that produced this universe, that produced this mind, came from nothing. Nothing in particular, just popped into existence. That feels to me more like magic than rationality. And it changes the way we think about uh, the world. Now here's Richard Dawkins in that famous statement. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Well, against all cultures that devalue existence, the Bible comes out on its first page and says, nope, everything's good. The beauty you suspect in the universe is really there. 
and I think this is one of the reasons people have been so drawn to the Bible over the years. But the Bible doesn't leave it there, of course. You turn over the page of the Bible and the second profound human question is confronted. Why the ugly? What's with the ugly? We all uh, see the ugly around us uh, at this time of the coronavirus, of course. Um, but many of you have experienced much greater pain and sorrow and evil and suffering than I've ever experienced. Um, I did lose my dad in a, in a plane crash when I was quite young. Uh, right now, my best mate is um, fighting for his life in hospital. Um, things are fallen. And that's before we even begin to talk about the fallenness of the human heart, the evil of the human heart. Um, and the thing is, the Bible hits this theme on the second page. I find that amazing. Yes, it, it talks about the goodness and beauty of the universe, but then you turn over the page and it's dealing with the brutal ugliness of it. I mean, you know the passage there in Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve are told not to eat of a particular tree. And then the passage goes on and says that they ate from that tree. And then Genesis 3 says that um, because they disobeyed God, there's a curse in the ground. And through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. The Bible is really honest about the fallenness of all things, of my heart and of uh, the creation. There's a sense in which the creation itself, which we well recognize um, in this coronavirus, has fallen, has become skewed, as it were, um, as a kind of echo of our rejection of the Creator. But here is one of the best things about the Bible. You are allowed to talk about this. You are allowed to cry out to God with all of your complaints and pain and doubts in the midst of this um, brokenness, in the midst of the ugliness, you're allowed to say, why God? I mean, um, I, I know most um, sort of pious people think of Psalm 23 when they're going through suffering. Uh, you know, the one, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But less well known is the Psalm that comes immediately before Psalm 23. And of course, it's called Psalm 22. Uh, it begins very differently. Have a listen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Here's the thing. Both can be expressions of faith. The Lord is my shepherd and my God, why? The fact that Psalm 22 is right there before Psalm 23 is surely proof that sometimes the cry, my God, why? can be as much an expression of faith as the expression, the Lord is my shepherd. I love the way the Bible invites us to think about the ugliness and to express this back to God. And I do believe this is one of the reasons people are so drawn to the honesty of the Bible. So why the beauty? What's with all the ugly? Uh, there are a couple of other questions. Um, my third question is, where is God in it all? Um, you know, the most practical question people ask when they're actually going through the ugliness of life isn't, you know, exactly um, why is this happening? What's the philosophical reason? Or, um, you know, how could God exist if I'm experiencing this pain? Um, I think the more pertinent, relevant question 
is where is God in the midst of my pain? What does God feel when I feel this way? What kind of God is on the other end of the scream that we cry out to the universe? You know, when my daughter uh, injures herself, as she occasionally does, and, uh, you know, grazes her knee or whatever and runs up to me and uh, grabs hold of me, you know, her question isn't, oh, Daddy, why the evil in the world? Her question is, Daddy, have you got me? Daddy, this hurts. She just wants to know that I've got her, that I feel her pain, that I'm sympathetic uh, toward her. And here's the most extraordinary thing about the Bible's plotline. It says that God is like that, that God is like the one who knows our pain personally. Because the Bible says that God entered into our world, our suffering world, our unjust world, and experienced injustice, experienced pain, experienced torture, and a dying breath. This is nowhere clearer than in the crucifixion narrative, of course, where the cry of the anguished poet of Psalm 22 um, becomes the cry of Jesus on the cross. We read, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a cry of self-doubt from the lips of Jesus. This is a deliberate and agonizing identification with anyone who has ever felt like crying out to God. If you have ever thought of saying, why God? Well, then we look at Jesus, God in the flesh, who in that moment experienced all that we've experienced and did it out of love for us, bearing into himself our punishment, our judgment that we might be forgiven. And in that moment, he knew horror and injustice. And he uses the words of Psalm 22 to express this. A psalm that people had said for centuries as a way of venting their doubts and anguish. Jesus prays. Jesus calls out on the cross. So if you've ever wondered whether God is near enough to care about your pain, here is surely the evidence. This God can comfort you, not just because he is all-knowing, but because he has experienced pain firsthand. You know, this is something uh, even some of the greatest atheists in history have recognized about the Christian faith. Um, you may have heard of the French existential uh, philosopher, uh, Albert Camus, who wrote a lot um, about the silence of the universe. Humanity cries out, but there's no answer. There's just this deafening silence because there is no God. But in an essay titled The Rebel, uh, toward the end of his life, um, he wrote this um, insight into the Christian faith that I find remarkable because he basically says that if Christianity were true, which he wasn't saying he believed it was for a second. But if it were true, it would be the answer to our suffering. Have a listen to what he says. Christ came to solve two major problems, evil and death. His solution consisted first in experiencing them. The man God suffers too, with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him, since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadow 
the divinity, abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop, despair included the agony of death. Sometimes it takes atheists to see in our faith things that we've lost sight of, that in the cross we have a God that we can cry out to, but who has suffered evil and death right alongside us. Why the beauty? What's with the ugly? Where is God in it all? Uh, fourthly and finally, what's the resolution? What's the resolution to this world we find ourselves in? You know, there are kind of two uh, real questions, uh, philosophical questions people might want to ask when going through suffering. One, of course, is why am I suffering? What's the particular reason I am suffering right now? The other, of course, is what will be the resolution? Now, let's think about this. If you were allowed to know just one of those two questions, what would you want to know? Would you want to know um, why any particular suffering comes upon you and not have any idea about the resolution? Or would you want to know that there was a resolution even if you couldn't know exactly why? And I think this is one of the interesting things. The Bible does make clear that there will be an almighty resolution. The Bible isn't clear on why any particular example of suffering happens to you or to me, but it is clear that God will resolve all things, that there is a future God has guaranteed which will make this suffering world seem like a bad dream that we've all woken up from. Let me tell you this remarkable uh, true story uh, that was in the Atlantic uh, magazine some years ago. A journalist was in a jazz club in New York City, a little tiny jazz club, one sleepy um, August evening. And he noticed that the trumpet player was a little bit better than he would have expected in a little dive like this. And from listening to the playing and kind of looking at him, although the, the trumpeter had sunglasses on and a hat and was sort of obviously incognito, but he could sort of tell from the playing that this was Wynton Marsalis. This was arguably the greatest living trumpeter. And he said that in the third uh, song, Winter Marsalis sort of stepped forward into the light and he realised it really was Winter Marsalis and played this beautiful ballad that had you know everyone transfixed. point of the ballad at the most beautiful sweet moment someone's blaring mobile phone went off in the front row um, and he, he describes it as a blaring rapid sing-song melody in electronic bleeps apparently people started giggling talking to one another and going back to their drinks and completely for forgot what was going on on stage and Winter Marsalis apparently just stood behind the microphone, frozen, just unclear uh, what he should do. And the journalist, who was the only one in the room who recognised who this was, wrote down in his little notepad, magic ruined. Magic ruined. 
But then, so the journalist tells us, Marsalis started to play again. You know what he played? The mobile phone tune he'd just heard a moment earlier. And he started playing the exact tune. And people started laughing and getting back to him and giving him uh, their attention. And then he started to improvise on the mobile phone tune. And this is where it becomes interesting. So let me read to you what the journo says. Marsalis repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo, and ended up exactly where he had left off. The ovation, he says, was tremendous. Wouldn't you love to have been in that room for the, this incredible uh, musical resolution? And I'll tell you that because it reminds me of the biblical promise that God will resolve all things. There are many passages, but toward the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, we read, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Here's the thing. God will take all of the ugly discord of this world and of history and somehow in his brilliance resolve it. Bring it back into his eternal melody and we will all join in that melody and the ovation will be tremendous. And the thing is, this isn't just pie in the sky. This isn't just a lame promise. And God has given a proof and pledge within history that he can breathe life where there is death, where he can overcome evil. I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, in the Bible, the resurrection isn't just the um, demonstration of how important Jesus is. I mean, it certainly is that. It is the down payment, the proof and the pledge that God will restore all things. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise of the restoration of all things in God's kingdom. Now, here's the interesting point to reflect on. The resurrection of Jesus tells us what kind of story we're in. It tells us we're in a story that will be resolved. Um, you know, um, only at the climax of my story about Wynton Marsalis um, could you possibly uh, know that it's a story of resolution. Only by the end do you look back and go, oh, how amazing. I mean, that story is better as a story precisely because of the interruption and discord that Winter Marsalis was able to resolve. If I had just told you it was a story of Winter Marsalis playing beautifully one evening, that's interesting. If I told you it was a story of how Winter Marsalis was interrupted and that was the end of the story, that would be depressing. But given that it's a story of a beautiful playing, of interruption and discord, and a miraculous resolution, that story is all the better. And I'm not just saying life is a story. It's not just a novel. But the thing is, the resurrection is the proof that we are in a history that will resolve, that our lives will be brought to redemption and fullness and life, justice 
and love will reign. Why the beauty? What's with the ugly? Where is God in it all? And what resolution is there? Now, I'm aware of the skeptical response to all of this. It's just wishful thinking. Uh, this is really just a wish fulfillment. People wished for this happy stuff to be true and they invented it. Uh, this line of reasoning goes um, at least as far back as Ludwig Feuerbach, the German philosopher in the 1840s, and to Sigmund Freud, uh, who in the early 1900s argued that religion was basically a longing for a father figure, a wish fulfillment. Uh, Smart people at the time actually asked what that made of um, Sigmund Freud's own atheism. Maybe that was a wish fulfillment. You know, maybe um, it isn't that uh, people long for the big parent in the sky. Maybe Sigmund Freud was just trying to uh, ignore the big daddy in the sky because he didn't have a very good relationship with his overbearing Austrian father, which Freud talked about. But the, the interesting thing is um, the idea that this is just a projection cuts both ways because why wouldn't unbelief just as much as belief be a wish fulfillment why wouldn't people wish for there to be no god so they can get on with their life so we need to be really careful about this whole wish fulfillment idea that christianity is just a projection of our longings and after all some longings correspond to things that fulfill those longings some thirsts if i might put it like this correspond to actual drinks you know, um, I have a glass of water, one I prepared earlier, and uh, I am a little bit thirsty after chatting to you for a little while, and I'm interested in getting a glass of water um, because I'm thirsty. But imagine if someone responded, oh, John, you only believe in water because you're thirsty. That would be a very strange response because some thirsts correspond to real thirst quenches. And my point, of course, is that Christianity is the ultimate H2O, the ultimate water for our thirst. I'll admit, it is a wish fulfillment. It's a true one, one that genuinely answers our deepest longings. You know, St. Augustine, way back in the fifth century, put this beautifully at the opening of one of the most famous books ever written, actually, his Confessions. Man is one of your creatures, Lord. Forgive the sexist language. Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you, because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. The Bible is water for our thirst. To understand the beauty, the ugly, where is God in it all, and what resolution is there in this world. And so it's fitting, isn't it, that the Bible actually closes by inviting us all for a drink. Revelation 22. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This, friends, is why the Bible has been so popular. It is water for our thirst. 
This is why in the 30 minutes or so I've been talking to you, more than 2,000 Bibles have been sold. God bless.